Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please keep them open there to Acts 17. That's where we're going to be spending our time together today. And let me just say, it, it's always a good idea to bring your Bible to church, uh, but uh, especially over the next few weeks, as we look at the book of Acts, we'll be looking at some larger sections of Scripture, and it's just going to be helpful uh, to have that in front of you. Now, let me begin today by asking you, have you ever felt like the odd one out? Have you ever felt like the odd one out? Maybe it was in a family photo like this kid. His little uh, sister doesn't look too impressed either. Maybe it was hanging out with your friends. That's a cat that I can get around. Or maybe you ended up somewhere that you shouldn't be. Imagine finding that in your spinach. Have you ever felt like the odd one out? Like you were out of place? Maybe it was at school. Most of us are a little bit odd at school. Maybe it was at work. You were on the fringes for whatever reason. Or maybe it was when you were in a different country. Everyone looked different to you. They spoke a different language to you and you felt left out. Maybe it's because you were a Christian. I mean, have you ever felt left out or like the odd one out because of your faith in Jesus? I'm sure most of us as, as followers of Jesus could relate to that feeling. The, the truth is today in our culture and in our country, Christianity is increasingly being seen as the odd one out. There's a, uh, uh, an English author and a social commentator named Oz Guinness. And, and yes, he's related to that Guinness family from Ireland. And he says, Western culture is experiencing an ABC moment. Now, what's an ABC moment? Well, he describes it as anything but Christianity. Uh, Stephen McAlpine, he works for the, the City Bible Forum in Perth. He's written a book called Being the Bad Guys. How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. And he suggests that over the last kind of 30, 40, 50 years, Christianity has gone from being quaint to irrelevant to dangerous. This is kind of the, the context that we find ourselves in. Most people around us are uninterested in Jesus. Many people around us are increasingly unfamiliar with Jesus. And some are even hostile to Jesus. And the question that we're going to be looking at this morning is how do we reach secular pessimistic Aussies with the good news about Jesus? If most people are kind of uninterested in Jesus, if, if many people are unfamiliar with Jesus, how do we reach people with the good news of Jesus? See, today we're going to look at a story from the Bible which is going to speak into this question. Today we're going to be looking at Paul's visit to the city of Athens in Acts 17. And we're going to look at how Paul engaged with a pagan pessimistic culture, with a culture that was unfamiliar with Jesus. Now, if you weren't here last week, we kicked off a, a sermon series in the book of Acts in, in chapters 16 to 28. This is actually part three of our three-part sermon series through the whole book of Acts. Now, like we said last week, the book of Acts is all about the spread of the gospel, the spread about of the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. 
kind of from where it began in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And last week, we looked at a really pivotal moment. We saw the good news of Jesus arrive in Europe. Paul and his companions go on a missionary journey and they go to Philippi, this Roman colony in Macedonia. And we see three very different people become followers of Jesus, the successful businesswoman, the slave girl, and the Roman jailer, because the good news of Jesus is for everyone. Well, today in Acts 17, the apostle Paul arrives in the city of Athens. See, after Paul and his companions leave Philippi, they travel west to Thessalonica and to Berea, but they are chased out of town by a group of angry Jews. And the apostle Paul has to flee down south to the city of Athens. And he finds himself alone in the city of Athens and he's waiting there for the others to join him. Now, what do we know about Athens? Well, Athens in its day was the intellectual center of the whole world. I mean, maybe a modern parallel might be the city of Boston, which is home to Harvard and a lot of MIT and a lot of significant universities. Or maybe Cambridge or, or um, Oxford in the United Kingdom. Or Brisbane, which has QUT, <laughs> says the QUT graduate. All you UQ snobs, please. Athens, uh, of course, was the birthplace of democracy. It was the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the most influential philosophers in history. Athens had great literature, great art, great architecture. It was a sophisticated, significant city. Now, by the time Paul arrived there, its glory had diminished somewhat, but it was still a very significant city. Now, Athens was also a very pagan, very pluralistic city. There was a lot of different gods. It was very religiously diverse in the city of Athens. And so the question is, you've got the Apostle Paul, the early church's greatest missionary. What's he going to do in the city of Athens? How is he going to engage with this kind of pagan, pessimistic city? This is what we're going to be looking at today. And as we look at how Paul engages with the city of Athens, we're going to learn how we can engage in our city which is also a very pluralistic city similar to Athens. So let's dive in and we're going to look at what Paul does under four headings. We're going to look at what Paul saw in Athens, what Paul felt, what Paul did, and then finally what Paul said. So let's begin firstly with what Paul saw. Now what would you expect Paul to see as he walks through the streets of Athens? Well, you would expect that he would have seen lots of impressive buildings and landmarks. Probably the most impressive was the Parthenon, this ancient temple to the gods that sat on the top of the Acropolis. Even today, people still flock to Athens to see the ruins of the Parthenon. Maybe many of you have been there yourself. Now, Paul would have seen this and more when he was in the city of Athens. But what really captured his attention? It was not the architecture of the city. What captured Paul's attention in Athens was the idolatry of the city. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul's attention was captured by the shrines, the statues, the altars, the temples to all these many, many different gods. 
These many, many different gods which were worshipped for many, many different things. This is what Paul noticed in the city of Athens. It was filled with idols. In fact, there was a Roman comedian uh, in that day who once said about Athens, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Now, I'm sure he was being facetious, but probably not by much. Athens was a city submerged in idolatry. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, that was ancient Athens. I'm glad we've kind of moved on and become more sophisticated. I'm glad we've left those primitive views behind us. But it's an interesting thought experiment to consider. What would someone see if they walked through the streets of the Brisbane CBD? Well, I think most obviously they would see lots of big buildings which are dedicated to making money. Tim Keller, a pastor from New York City, which is a city that has a lot bigger buildings than Brisbane, he says, he says the tallest buildings in any city are an indication of what that city worships. Now, what were the tallest buildings in our cities, let's say 150 years ago? At least in most Western cities. The tallest buildings were churches. Now, today, the tallest buildings are temples to business and money. What else would you see if you walked through the, the streets of the Brisbane CBD? You'd see lots and lots of shops where you can buy lots and lots of different things that promise to give happiness and, and contentment and meaning. You'd see stadiums and cafes and restaurants and casinos and nightclubs and strip clubs. In other words, you wouldn't see many statues and shrines, except maybe Wally Lewis at Suncorp Stadium, which is a bit revealing in itself. We even call him the king. But you would still see plenty of places and spaces where we offer our worship, where we give ourselves our time, our money, our attention. See, modern Brisbane is not totally unlike ancient Athens. Now, the question is, what should we think about this? How should we feel about this? This leads us to our second point. What Paul felt. Look at verse 16 again. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed at all of this idolatry. Other translations say he was deeply troubled. Others say his spirit was provoked within him. Now, why was Paul so upset at this idolatry, all of these idols? Well, I think, firstly, at least, he was distressed by the lostness of the Athenians. These were people made in God's image, made to know God, made to love God, but they'd exchanged the living God for a bunch of worthless statues. They, they were lost, they were confused, they were deceived, and it made Paul deeply distressed. Now, I think it's worth, worth asking, what's my attitude to the people in our city, to those who are far from Jesus, to those who are chasing after other things, to those who, whose lives are consumed by lesser things than Jesus? Is it condescension? Do I, do, do I look down on them? Do I feel superior to them? Or is it compassion? Does my heart break for them? Does my heart go out to them? The Apostle Paul was distressed at the lostness of the Athenians. But I think there was a, another reason that he was so distressed at this idolatry. 
I think he was also distressed because of his jealousy for God's glory. You see, as he looked at the statues and the shrines of this city, he not only saw crowds of lost people, he also saw God being dishonored. He saw worship being given where it did not deserve to be given. Maybe the Apostle Paul had in his mind Isaiah 42 verse 8, where God says, I am the Lord. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. You know, it's not the perfect analogy, but it's similar to the way that I'm the only person in the world that my kids call dad. You know, I, I brought them into the world. Well, you know, I guess I had some help. <laughs> I played some part in bringing them into the world. Not much. But I love them and I provide for them and I care for them. And I'm the only one that they call dad. Now, if they started calling every other man they met dad they would not only become a little bit lost and confused, but I would be dishonored and, and insulted and upset. Now, how much more insulting is it when we as God's creatures, whom he created with deep love, we give our ultimate allegiance and worship to someone or something other than him? And this is what upsets Paul so deeply, the lostness of the Athenians and his jealousy for God's glory. Now, the question is, what does Paul do about it? How does he respond to it? And how should we respond? Well, this leads us to our third point. We've seen what Paul saw, what, what Paul felt, and now we see what Paul did. Look at verse 17. Paul's response is, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Now notice, it doesn't say Paul was so deeply distressed by the idolatry that he condemned the Athenians. He walked away from them. He said, to hell with you. No, it says, so he reasoned with them. He doesn't rage against the idolatry. He doesn't raise his fists at the people. He engages with them. He talks with them. He explains Jesus to them. And notice that he did this both in the synagogue, the place of worship for the Jews, where, where religious people were to be found, and he did it in the marketplace. Now, when we hear the marketplace, we might automatically think, you know, Umundi Markets or, or something like that, or maybe Westfield Chermside. But the marketplace, the Agora, it was more like the cultural center of Athens. I mean, this is, this is where people went to get the news, I mean, you didn't have social media in that day. You didn't have newspapers. And so you went to the marketplace to get the latest news. You went to the marketplace to do business, to debate politics, to discuss philosophy, to perform art. This was the cultural center of Athens. Maybe the, the most you know, obvious modern parallel for us is South Bank. South Bank is kind of like the cultural precinct of Brisbane. But the important point here is that Paul not only brought the gospel to the synagogue, he also brought it to the marketplace. He was engaging with skeptics and seekers and non-believers. He was even engaging with sophisticated philosophers, we're told there in verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, I don't have time to, to go into exactly what they believed, but the point is Paul is engaging with all kinds of people. 
religious and irreligious, highly educated and uneducated, all kinds of people. He's talking with them about Jesus. And friends, this is our call as well. Wherever God has placed us, he calls us to engage with those around us, to to share the good news of Jesus with them. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go out and buy a soapbox and a, and a, a microphone. I'm not even saying you you need to to be preaching at people. Um, The word used in verse 17, when it says Paul reasoned with them, it's the Greek word dialogomai. We get our word dialogue from it. Paul is talking with them, engaging with them, answering questions, asking questions, answering objections. He's engaging. And this is how we engage sceptical people. On the one hand, we don't just preach at them. Here's the truth, this is how it is, take it or leave it. But on the other hand, nor do we hide from them. We're willing to to reason with people, to engage with people, to talk with them about Jesus. Now maybe you're you're thinking, yeah, I I agree this is important. I agree that, that, that life is to be found only in Jesus and we should talk about Jesus. The problem is I just don't know exactly what to say. I don't have all the answers and I don't know how to engage with others about Jesus. Well, this leads us to our fourth and final point, which is what Paul said. Because what Paul goes on to say is instructive for us in helping us to know what to say. Because if you look at verses 18 to 31, Paul's engagement in the marketplace, it actually leads to an invitation to speak at the Areopagus. Now, this is one of the greatest opportunities of the Apostle Paul's ministry. I mean, if the marketplace was the cultural center of Athens, the Areopagus was the intellectual center of Athens. These were the kind of the leading philosophers, the the most prominent public intellectuals of that day. It's an incredible opportunity for the Apostle Paul. Now, what did he say? He's invited to explain what he believes, and and what, what do you think he's going to say? What would you say? If you were given the opportunity to address an intellectually sophisticated audience with with perhaps no exposure to Jesus whatsoever, how would you do it? What would you say? Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. Let's look at how he goes about it. The first thing we see him him do is establish common ground. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And so Paul doesn't begin by attacking them. He begins by establishing common ground with them. He doesn't say, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very dumb and deceived and deluded. No, he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He's establishing common ground. He's looking beneath the idolatry to see the desire that's underneath it. The desire to know God. The desire to worship God. He establishes common ground. And we can do the same thing. I mean, you might say to your colleague who is maybe a very vocal atheist, you know, I admire your passion for wanting to know the truth. I can see that, that, that you want to think deeply about life's big questions. Or you might say to your uh, mum friend who's not a Christian, 
I can see that you really care about the future of your children. I can see that you want their lives to matter. Or you might say to someone who really deeply cares about social justice in our day, you might say, I'm so touched by how caring and compassionate you are. I admire your desire to want to deal with the brokenness in our world. You see, we're not going to agree with everything that someone believes, but this doesn't mean we can't find common ground. This is the first thing that Paul does. The second thing he does is he uses familiar examples. Now, he'll do this again a little bit later when he quotes one of their own poets, but right here at the beginning, he uses an example from their own city. He uses a monument, a landmark that they would have been familiar with. He says, verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully, Paul's a student of the city, he's a student of that culture, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, I've already mentioned how the Athenians had a God for everything. Artemis, the goddess of money. Athena was the goddess of wisdom. Nike was the goddess of victory. Aphrodite was the goddess of beauty. There was even a goddess for the sewer system. I don't want to know how you made an offering to her. There was a God for everything. Now, this altar to the unknown God, this was their just-in-case God. You know, just in case they somehow missed a God or they missed the real God among their many thousands of altars and gods, they built this altar to the unknown God, just in case. And as Paul walked around the city, he noticed this altar. He picked up on it and he begins his talk by using it. Now notice, he doesn't begin with a verse from the scriptures. Paul actually doesn't even quote the scriptures in this talk. He doesn't, and I almost feel bad saying this in church, he doesn't even mention the name Jesus in this talk. Now, he certainly refers to Jesus indirectly, and he certainly refers to the Old Testament scriptures indirectly, but he doesn't mention them explicitly. Now, why would he do this? Are you even allowed to do this? Well, Al Mohler is a president of Bible College in the States, and he says in his commentary on Acts, he says, Paul knew his audience. When Paul spoke to Jews, he began with the Hebrew Scriptures and moved to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Had Paul adopted the same method at the Areopagus, however, he would have lost his audience. These philosophers would have had little to no understanding of the Jewish heritage and tradition. Now, Paul doesn't change the message. The message of the gospel doesn't change. But Paul changes the way that he delivers the message. There's a difference to the way Paul talks when he's in the synagogue to the way he talks when he's at the Areopagus. He changes the way he delivers the gospel so that it will break through for his audience, so that his audience can actually begin to hear what's being said. And this is called contextualization. This is what Paul is doing here. He establishes common ground, he uses familiar examples, and he does all of this so that he might share the truth about Jesus in a way that they will hear. And this is what he goes on to do. You see, Paul sees this altar to the unknown God as an admission by the Athenians that they're really ignorant about God. 
that they're spiritually in the dark. And so he says to them in verse 23, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, this might seem arrogant to us in in, in modern-day Western culture. You know, Paul saying, you're ignorant, so let me fill you in. But remember Paul's story. He himself was converted dramatically on the Damascus Road. Paul would have been the first to admit, if God hadn't revealed himself to me in his son Jesus, I too would be ignorant of the one true God. And this is kind of what we're saying as Christians as well. We're saying we wouldn't know God unless he'd made himself known to us in Jesus. But because he has, we have something to say. Because he has, we can't help but tell you about him. And this is what Paul goes on to do. He goes on to give them a a vision of the one true God. And he gives them a big view of this God. He shows the Athenians that the one true God is far bigger than they've ever imagined. And he shows them also that he is far closer than they could have dreamed. So what does Paul tell them about God? I won't go through the verses, but let me just summarize what he says. Firstly, in verse 24, uh, he says to these Athenians that God, the true God, is the creator of everything and everyone. Now, Paul doesn't quote Genesis 1 there in verse 24, but he's teaching the truth of Genesis 1. That God is the creator of everything and everyone. He's not just the God of money and wisdom and beauty and this tribal God of different things. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He made everything. He owns everything. It's his creator of everything and everyone. Secondly, he goes on, he tells them in verse 25 that this God is the sustainer of everything and everyone. You know, unlike these idols in Athens, which needed to be made and then cleaned and then polished, God needs nothing from us. He doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. We need him. We need him for life and breath and everything. Thirdly, Paul says to these Athenians, this God is the creator of everything. He's the sustainer of everything. But he's also within reach of each of us. This God who made everything, this God who sustains everything, he also desires relationship with us. He says, though he is high and holy, he's also near and knowable. Though he is cosmic, he's also close. Now, to make this point, Paul doesn't actually quote from the Bible. He he refers to one of the Athenian uh, poets. He shares words from one of their own songs to show them that they too sense this nearness of God. And, you know, I think if we look at the songs that we sing, if we look at the TV shows we watch, the movies we watch, we too can see this longing for more, this longing for God in those things. For example, Lady Gaga, one of the poets of our generation, maybe not one of the best poets of our generation, but a poet nonetheless. She sings in in, in her song, Shallow. She says, tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world? Or do you need more? Is there something else you're searching for? Tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? Lady Gaga is expressing this inner longing for more. This desire for the unknown God. And Paul is telling the Athenians and he's telling us that this God, the one true God, is near to each of us. Is within reach 
of all of us. Now the question is, if this God is near and knowable, where do we find him? How do we reach out to him? And this is what Paul turns to in his conclusion. He tells the Athenians and he tells us that we can know all these things are true about God because God has given us one big ultimate proof that they're true. Let me read verses 30 to 31, how Paul lands this sermon. He says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so Paul is saying that we are, we have, because we have all been created by God, we are all accountable to this God. We will one day stand before this God. We will stand before this judge. Now, Paul doesn't tell us who the judge is, but we know who it is because of what he says in verse 31. It is one who has been raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus is the judge, and God has given us the ultimate proof through the resurrection of Jesus. You know, Bertrand Russell was a famous, famous British atheist philosopher, and he was once asked in his life, Bertrand, what would you say to God on judgment day if Christianity proved to be true. Bertrand thought about it for a moment and then replied, and he said, you didn't give me enough evidence. But according to what Paul has just said, that excuse is not going to fly. Because as far as God is concerned, the resurrection of Jesus is proof enough for everyone. I mean, what more could we want? What better way for God to prove to us that he created all things, that he sustains all things, that he desires relationship with all people than to defeat the undefeatable for us? Than to do what no one else could do and to do what no one else has done. It's the ultimate proof. Here's the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God offers to the world. Now, we don't have time to get into the evidence for the resurrection. It's there and it's formidable. But the question for us today is if it's true, what does God want from us? What response does God ask of us? And it's right there in verse 30. Paul says to the Athenians, to us, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, that, uh, repent sounds like a scary religious word, but it very simply means to turn. To turn from rebellion against God and turn to Jesus. And it's the turning to Jesus that's important. You see, repentance is more than remorse. You can feel bad about things you've done, but not turn to Jesus. And repentance is more than kind of reform. You can change your life. You can stop drinking or taking drugs or whatever else, but not turn to Jesus. See, repentance is turning from sin and it's turning to Jesus. I like the way Aussie pastor Ray Galea puts it. He says, it's turning from a life run by me to a life run by Jesus. 
It's about making Jesus the main character in my life. It's adopting Jesus' view of the world and everything else. And this is the response that God asks of us, to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. Now, what was the response of the Athenians in the Areopagus? We were told there at the end that some people sneered, laughed at Paul, mocked him. Other people were intrigued by it. I'd like to hear more about that. And some, some people had their lives changed by it. And friends, this is still the response to Jesus today. Some people mock and laugh at the good news of Jesus. Some people are intrigued by it. And many people have had their lives changed by it. Many of us in this room have been changed by Jesus. We have found freedom and hope and life in Jesus. And we are now called to help other people find that same thing. Some of us in this room have not turned to Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, he is inviting you to come home today. He's extending his hand to you today. His arms are open to you today. He is not far from any of us. He is within reach of all of us. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You are the one who made all things, sustains all things, and holds all things in your hands. And yet, Lord, you are also the one who is near to us, who has come to us in the Lord Jesus, died for us and rose again so that we might find hope and freedom and forgiveness and life. Lord, thank you that in Jesus you are not far from any of us. But your arms are open to all of us who will put our trust in you. So Lord, for those of us here this morning who have never done that, Lord, help us by your Spirit to see Jesus as he really is, to place our faith and our trust in him and to find the freedom and the life and the hope that he gives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.